pastors. And it's a section of scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul is trying to recalibrate the Corinthian church's understanding of their leadership. It's not just the Corinthians who need it. Um, it's, it's a challenge in general to recognize the uniqueness of the church and therefore the uniqueness of how we should view leaders within the church. And what we're going to look at tonight, um, he, he does a couple of things that are helpful. The first thing is, in very specific terms, he answers the question, how should we think of leaders in the church? And then he goes on and talks about, um, about how to assess those leaders, how to determine value, where, how it is that we go about considering those categories of leadership. And then he does something super interesting, okay? We'll see this as we read the passage together. He says, everything I've been talking about, about leaders, about apostles and pastors, it's really just been an analogy because what I really wanted to talk about is you. And that's actually probably good news for many of you who may not identify as a pastor or a teacher or as a leader in the church. He broadens this out and says, what I've just said is applicable to all of us. It's something that we all need to hear. And as much as I've made ourselves the example, I've really just done that to get you nodding in agreement so that I can, you know, stick it to you, if you will. Uh, So if you have a Bible tonight, you're going to want to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you didn't bring one tonight, that's fine. There should be one sitting nearby you in the back of a pew. Um, And if you use the index, you should have no problem finding chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians and reading along with us. We're going to look at the first seven verses in this chapter tonight. So let's read it through and then we'll pray. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says this, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light uh, the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray. God, the human tendency in in reviewing any source of wisdom, any source of knowledge, any perspective is to look in it for reinforcement for justification, to open our Bibles and say, let's see how this book demonstrates that I am already in the right. But I pray tonight, Lord, for a change of hearts in each of us, that it would be beyond that natural response, and instead we would be listening for where we need to be realigned, that we would be um, open to and even asking for your word to confront us, knowing that you do that from a heart of love to bring about change. We thank you, Lord, that you love us even though you know everything. 
about us and that you constantly speak the truth in love. I pray that we would have receptive hearts to that truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, Paul begins with just an outright statement. He answers the question that we've been talking about um, for weeks. He's done it in other ways that are a little bit more veiled, a little bit more like asides or just side points in his argument. But here he just comes out and says it in verse 1. This is how one should regard us. Speaking here once again of leaders, pastors, teachers, apostles in the church. He says, this is how they should be regarded. This is how you should think of us. And what does he say? As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. And so he picks these two terms, servants and stewards. And this, this should be said, this should be recognized tonight, that both of these worlds, uh, words come from the lowest class of Roman society. Right? Servants and stewards fall both into the connotation of the Roman slave. Okay? This is how he says that leaders and teachers and pastors and apostles in the church should be regarded. Just that in and of itself, if you allow it to bear its whole weight, if you really take the full frontal reality of that truth, is different than what we normally think. It's different than what we normally um, allow to control our perspective. And most importantly, it's different than anything else. Okay? He could here, and rightly and appropriately say, this is how you should regard your leaders as authorities. Okay? Now, I recognize we're not always comfortable with that word, but leadership and authority go hand in hand. When he uses the word servant, though, it's very rare that it triggers that word authority, is it? He's swinging to the other side of the spectrum. He says, if you really want to understand leadership, you can't start with authority. In fact, he's already complained. Look, he says, you think, he says earlier in this passage, you think that you belong to these people. And so you identify, you align yourself with, you put yourself under the umbrella of these people. And he says, you have it backwards. They belong to you. These leaders are God's gifts to the church. They've been given to you. And now he changes it up and realigns it again with this word servant, with this word steward. Now, even the Greek word that he uses for servant here is one of many we find in the New Testament that we translate in English as servant, okay? And so, for example, there's the, the, dolo, the doulos, which is like the bond servant. It's, it's just a very standard word for servant. Or we saw last week the diakonos, um, the deacon, the minister, this word. But the word here is a different one. Um, in fact, most of its uses in the New Testament doesn't apply to servants at all. It's, it's military version, and it's translated officers. But when it's used outside of a military assessment, it always speaks of a servant uh, in just the most general and basic terms. In fact, there's a passage that utilizes this word that I find very helpful in trying to understand it. Now, just as an aside, because some of you are Bible students, and you may know already that this Greek word is huperetes. And so what some pastors will lay out is the huperetes were the under rowers. You know how old boats had the oars built into the sides, and some people were down below rowing the boat? That's what some people say this word means. Unfortunately, we don't have any place in all of our Greek literature where it's used in that way. Okay, So I don't want to mislead you. But we can be clear that it's this general term, and like I said, our author, Luke, who is 
a classic Greek speaker, and everybody agrees that the Greek of Luke and Acts is some of the highest in the New Testament, he uses this word in a particular context, and it's a, it's a surprising one. Okay, I'll set the, set the stage for you. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is teaching in his home synagogue. Okay? And so what he does is he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls it to the place where it says, and he reads the passage aloud, and then he rolls it up and he says, what I just read to you has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word is used in that passage because it says, and then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it to the attendant. Okay? That word is huperetes. That's the word that Paul uses here. What gets ex- me excited about that is it's clear in the context what the attendant does. He's just responsible for the scrolls. That's it. His only job is to make sure that the scrolls are taken care of, that they're given to the teacher, that they're put back. This word has that connotation, okay? It's a word that's inherently related to doing stuff and taking care of stuff. It's baseline. It's basic. It's normal. The the word as it's used here, as he points to, is the fact that they are merely servants, okay? Now, he does add a word that's super important. It's not just servants here. It's servants of Christ. And here's why that's important. In the last passage, the one right before this, he's pointed out, look, it's not that you belong to your pastors. They belong to you. But just because they belong to the church doesn't mean they're accountable ultimately to the church. Notice this. He doesn't see these leaders here as servants of the church, but servants of Christ. And that distinction is a very important one, as we'll see as it plays out in the passage. Okay? And so what it recognizes here is that ultimately the Christian understanding of leadership and therefore the manifestation of that understanding in a Christian organization like the church is leaders as servants. Now, this is not some clever idea of Paul's, but he is building upon the foundation that Jesus himself laid. You see, it was Jesus who said to his disciples, you have seen the authorities of the nations, the Gentile rulers, and you've seen that they take their authority and they lord it over one another. They see it as a place of privilege and power and advantage. And they take full advantage. He says, but not so with you, but I tell you that he who is the greatest in the kingdom of God shall be the servant of all. And then he continues just to nail home. You want to know what a servant looks like? He says this, for even the son of man, even me myself, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay. And so he overturns the paradigm. He upsets the understanding that we have and he says you cannot understand the leaders in the church unless you begin with the fact that they are servants and specifically servants of Christ. Then he uses another word and it's the word steward. Okay? Now, uh, the the only place where we have stewards anymore that I'm aware of is on an airplane which isn't a helpful assessment. So let me set the understanding back in the first century world. The steward was the one who's responsible for the household and usually the one whose primary job is to take care of the rest of the servants. If you've seen Downton Abbey, you know the role that I'm talking about, okay? The idea of a steward is that you have been given trust of all of the things that your master owns for the distribution of those things to the household, for the investing of those things to the wealth of the master, for the watching and security of those things, because ultimately they are not yours. That's the word he uses here, a steward. 
The implication that he's trying to drive home is that everything that pastors and leaders have, they have been given and ultimately doesn't belong to them and therefore they will be responsible to someone else for it. Okay? This is the idea that he's conjuring up with the word steward. And once again, he modifies it for us. It's not just stewards as a general analogy, but what does he say? Look again at verse 1. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay. Now, I don't want you to get lost in the language here. So let's be really clear. What does he mean by the mysteries of God? Okay. Now, one of the reasons why that word can be confusing to us is because for us, as American English speakers, mystery means enigma. We think of unsolved mysteries, right? You remember the TV show? We think of something that can't be known or understood. It's a mystery. That's not really what this word means. Sometimes it's better to think of this word as a secret, okay? And as we look at how the New Testament uses this word as a whole, which it does about 20 times, what we find is that what Paul is referring to every time he mentions the mysteries of God is the fact that God had a plan. God had a program. God was moving towards salvation, but he didn't tell everybody the plan up front. But in Jesus Christ, all of this has been revealed, and what he says here is that it's the job of pastors and leaders to steward those mysteries. Okay, so they've been given something to communicate. Now, the reason why I'm trying to lay this big foundation before we move forward is very simple. Here, clearly, Pastors and teachers are not about innovation or genius or creativity. They have been given a message, and they are stewards of that message. They are accountable to the master for conveying that message. Okay? And so ideas of novelty, for example, are outright out of place for what Paul's talking about here. They have been entrusted in the same way that a steward of a household has been given Uh, you know, an allotment of food for the year, they have been entrusted a message to convey faithfully. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, another word that Paul used was a herald, and it has the same implication. The herald is the one who's been given a message from the king, and his only job is to faithfully relay that message, okay? And so this is how he says we should think of leaders in the church, as stewards of the mysteries of God who are accountable to God, obviously, and servants of Christ, who are accountable to Christ. Now, the reason why he uses this particular image here, if you remember the whole context of what he's talking about here, the church in Corinth is having an outright civil war. They've broken the church into parties and identified with particular leaders against other leaders. And so some say, I'm of Paul, and others, I'm of Apollos. And they look down on Christians who weren't in the inner circle, even though people in the church all drew that inner circle in different places. This is why he's bringing this up, and he says, listen, what you seem to be forgetting is that leaders are inherently servants and stewards, and most importantly, they're not your servants. They're not your stewards. Your assessment isn't the final assessment. It's not the most important one. The second question we have to ask here is, okay, well, how do you assess a servant? Okay, if we're talking about a celebrity, we have standard ways of assessing that, right? Um, For attractiveness and ability, these become the metrics for how we assess celebrity. Um, If you're an employee in a company, there's metrics of success, and that's how you're assessed. But what about a servant? What about a steward? 
And this is what he says. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, moreover, it's required of stewards, what? That they be found trustworthy. Or if you have another English translation, that they be found faithful. What he says is the way that you assess a servant is faithfulness. The metric that you use for, for evaluating a steward is trustworthiness. The implication here is one that we've already kind of gone around the bush on, but just to nail it home, they have been given things. And what they do with the things they've been given is how they're assessed. And then to state the obvious, although we'll come back to this in a second, they're assessed by the one who gave them those things. He'll come back to that in a second, but here's what he says. What's required of a steward is that they be found faithful. Now, first and foremost, this is really good news. Okay? I find this to be one of the most encouraging verses in the passage, and here's why. Because when we assess anything as human beings, it is inherently comparative. Meaning that when we assess the value of one athlete over another, we, af- we assess him in relationship to these other athletes. Okay? And so he's a faster runner than, is implied, than others. Um, when we look at uh, beauty or ability or all of these things, that's how we do those assessments. But here's the thing. Uh, let me spoil the plot. Remember here that the master, the one that we're being faithful to, the one who's the judge who's about to be brought up, he knows the whole story, okay? He's all-knowing. He, he knows all the details. He knows what's been given and, therefore, what should be expected. Keep all that in mind and just realize this. It means that me, as a pastor and a teacher, do not have to worry about my weaknesses being pitted against and compared to his strengths, Right? Because that has nothing to do with faithfulness. The things that other people were given, they are accountable to, but I'm not accountable to those things. This is something that he's already stressed. He says, look, Apollos, he, plant, or he watered the church, and I planted. He says those roles are different. And you can't look at Apollos and go, you know what, I don't think he's laying those seeds down very well. That's right, because he's not a planter. He's a waterer. And so that comparison is out of place. When he says here what's required of a servant is faithfulness, like I said, he's giving us very good news because it means that God's standard of measurement here is different than the one that's readily available to us. Here, let me illustrate how this plays out in life. When we assess the value of somebody, we do it with where they end and we never consider where they began. Right? Because we don't always know. And so... What I'm getting at here, probably a good illustration of this, is this word that's become very popular right now, privilege. The idea of privilege is recognizing the fact that many of us, despite uh, you know, having nothing to do with our own abilities, have an easier time getting to certain places in life than others. When we bring the word faithfulness in it, into it, it means that God's assessment knows where things began. And so sees that journey as its whole and can't just look out and go, well, here's a successful human being because they have a a full 401k and here's an unsuccessful one because their paycheck is hand to mouth. Because it's not about ability or achievement, it's about faithfulness. So it keeps those beginning places intact. Like I said, it doesn't allow space for weaknesses to be compared to strengths. Listen, this is of great personal importance to me. 
I often feel like the world's most failed introvert. A lot of times people share with me things that they've struggled with in knowing me, and it's not that I don't meet those things that's hard for me. It's that I can't even see them. I don't even understand them. And even as I read this passage again this week, I just had this relief where it's like, you know what? I am who I am, not as an excuse, but that's the standard of measurement. And so I don't have to be measured against Mr. Extrovert. And for those of you who came from broken homes, the reality of the way that you moderate, for example, your anger and how that manifests is not compared to somebody who had a completely intact and loving family wrapped around them who, I mean, the reality is some of us are more rough around the edges because we've been roughed up, right? What's required of a servant is faithfulness. That's the guideline. That's the standard. That is so relieving to me. Now, as a side note, some of you may be saying, well, yeah, that may all be true, but Paul here is talking about leaders and pastors and teachers. I don't identify as any of those things. I'm just a Christian. Listen, what Paul says here about leaders being servants is true. Being stewards is true, but it's also true of each and every one of you. We need to recover in the church this word vocation. And sometimes when we use the word for vocation or when we use the word calling, we use it in such a narrow sense. And so I'm called to be a missionary is acceptable. I'm called to be a pastor or a church planter. Or uh, when we think of vocation, we think, well, there's, there's God jobs and then there's jobs. That's not how the Bible sees it. The reality is you too are servants of the Lord. Is that not how Jesus speaks? Is that not how the New Testament labels you? Or am I the only one in the room who wears the badge of servant? No, the way that Christianity identifies all of us is as servants of Jesus Christ. And it's the same with stewards. You each have been given gifts and talents and a beginning place in life and circumstances to grow in all of these things. In fact, you've been given a calling. I know this word gets thrown around and it can be so confusing, so let me just unpack it for you and and make it real. Some of you have been called to be mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters or neighbors to your particular neighbors or coworkers to your particular coworkers or bosses to your particular employees. Every single part of that is bound up in this idea of calling. It's bound up in this idea of vocation. And the reality is that the Christian life rightly lived means that the milkmaid is the servant of the Lord just as much as the minister. That's what Martin Luther said. So I know that many of you wrestle with calling and what does God want from you, but reduce it just down to right now. Wherever you are, that's where he has you even if it's by your own mistakes, lack of wisdom, or sin patterns that got you there. Faithfulness can begin today, and it begins where you are. Let me just give one more illustration of this before I move on. If you feel like God is calling you to something over there, or someday, I expect and anticipate to see some of that playing out right now. Okay, and so... If, if you're feeling called to be a missionary over there and you're not a missionary over here, I would question if you're being faithful. And the sole reason is because calling is so much bigger than over there. It's so much bigger as tomorrow. It's so much bigger as 
grown-up ministry or something. I don't know. I don't understand why we get hung up on these things, but I know that we do. The reality is faithfulness in the context of this passage is a present tense reality, not a tomorrow, not when I graduate, not when I finally have my life in order, not when my finances are finally balanced out. Faithfulness now. In fact, money is a good illustration of this. This is what Jesus says. He says, don't be fooled. He who's faithful with little will be faithful with much. Faithfulness. And all he's saying is, look, if you really have a hard time with $100, do you think it'll be easier with a million dollars? If you use your money in a way that glorifies God when you have little, of course, you'll continue to do it. But if you don't now, why do you think it'll change when you have more? Have you not watched the people who win the lottery? Does a million dollars in your pocket suddenly make you wise with money? No, because you're the same person. And so faithfulness is a present tense um, reality. And remember, you don't have to be compared against Mr. African Missionary or Mrs. Incredibly Gifted at Evangelism. What's required of you is faithfulness in the gifts and talents and ability and personality and calling that God has given you. Now, is that not good news? So where do we go wrong? Why doesn't that always sound like good news? Why does the idea of being servants come so bad? It's because of what Paul says next. Listen. He says in verse 3, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Here's what he recognizes. That there are three courts, three places that the assessment comes from. Others, ourselves, and then ultimately he'll point to the Lord. And what he says here is, I don't put much stock in the courts of men, in the opinions of the public. And he says, I don't even put much stock in my own conscience. Now we'll clarify that in just a second, but I want to hammer this truth home first. Clearly, clearly this is where things get wrong. Okay, The reason why we get so scared about what it is that God wants of us in our life. The reason why the idea of judgment at the finish line, is, as we saw um, a few weeks ago, gold, silver, and precious stone being tested by fire and making it through, wood, hay, and stubble being burned up. The fact that our whole life will be evaluated, the real thing that trips us up in this has nothing to do with the judgment of God. It has to do with these two other courts. It has to do with how prone we are to relegate ourselves merely to the court of public opinion or how prone we are to be self-satisfied in the fact that, well, I don't feel like I did anything wrong. I'm, I'm satisfied with what I'm doing. Or, on the other hand, to be constantly in fear and trembling because your conscience is so shaken. Now, if clarity is needed at any portion tonight, it's right here. Because just read these verses on their own. Imagine this is the only Bible you had. Paul says, I don't think very much of what other people think of me, and I don't even judge myself. What does that do? It throws all accountability, all evaluation, all confrontation or accusation. It it takes any chance of you being wrong out the window. In fact, basically what he says here is only God can judge me. You know who else else said that besides the Apostle Paul? Jay-Z did. But they mean it in very different ways. Okay? Here, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Here he says, once again, in verse 3, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. 
this is not about accountability. I said it before the sermon started, and I'll say it again. You need other people. In fact, you need other people's perspective of where you're going wrong. Here's one way I know this. Here, it sounds like he's saying, pay no attention to the judgment of man, but what happens in the next chapter? Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now I've heard that there's a man in your church who is now sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he says, this is not to be. And this is what he says in verse 3 of chapter 5. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Is that clarifying for us, just on what Paul can't mean in chapter 4? He clearly can't mean that judgment is outright, that it can't be part of it. We could say the same thing about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, and the only thing you know that Jesus ever said was, judge not, lest you be judged. Have you read it in its context? Have you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Because he spends a good deal of time on talking about how to evaluate the difference between righteousness and wickedness, between hypocrisy and real reality. In fact, just a few verses later, he says, do not cast your pearls before swine. What's the, when he gives a command like that, what's the implication? That you will know a swine when you see it. Evaluation, right? But more importantly here, The New Testament makes very clear that you need the evaluation, the assessment, even the confrontation of other people. Maybe no passage makes it clearer than in Hebrews chapter 3. Don't worry about turning there, but just listen. Okay, the author of Hebrews here um, is giving a warning. He's giving an exhortation of which the book of Hebrews is kind of chock full, by the way. If Hebrews was a chocolate chip cookie, warnings are the chocolate chips, okay? They're everywhere. And sometimes we can't even tell how they fit the context. It's just like, I've been talking for five minutes, time to give another warning. That's what it feels like. Listen to this one, though, in chapter 3. This is what he says in verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you, listen, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what is the risk that he's trying to warn us? When he says, take care that none of you succumb to an evil and unbelieving heart, where does that come from? From the deceitfulness of sin. What he's pointing out here is that on our own, we have a tendency to live our lives in such a way that we become blind to bad behavior. Live our lives in a way that we can't even see the worst part of you. You want to hear a scary truth? The thing that's most wrong with you, the thing that's the most idolatrous that you do, the thing that is the most offensive to God, you're not aware of, I promise you. Because that's what sin does, according to the Bible. Sin blinds us. And so what does he say is the, the solution to that? He says, take care, how? By exhorting one another daily. You see, the perspective of other Christians and them confronting you in places where they're concerned for your sin, this is to be a daily, normal exercise of the church. You want to know why the ideas of confrontation is so scary to us? Because we wait till it builds up and it's huge, and then we pounce out, you know, like, a, like an intervention. We just pounce out and sit it all in their laps. But we need one another. And so Paul's not saying, hey, I'm unaccountable, and you should be unaccountable too. But he's saying, even if that court of opinion exists, it's not the final court. 
It's not the most important one. And once again, you know this to be the case because what happens when, be, when public opinion becomes the final court, the place where you get your validation, your, your justification, and your testimony of innocence? You begin to cater to the crowd. You begin to perform. You begin to live in a way that stops thinking about what's right and thinks about what's rightly applauded. Stop thinking about what's good and starts thinking about what's good good publicity. And so Paul recognizes here, look, I don't, he says, I don't think very much of public opinion. He says effectively, I'm not here for a popularity contest. I don't really care that you think Apollos is a more eloquent speaker than me. Not not because, once again, he's, he's somehow arrogant. In fact, there's only one other court that we tend to get screwed up on, and that's this one. Because what does he say? He says, I don't even judge myself. Listen, I always feel weird saying this because it seems like a weird thing, but the most depressed I've ever been in my life was fourth grade. That's probably a good thing. I understand that. I appreciate that. I'm not, for those of you who have really struggled with dark things, I'm not trying to put myself on par. But it was a rough time for me. And somehow, in the follow-up of that, the way that I got out of it was I just went, I don't care what people think. I'm happy with who I am. I'm going to be myself and just give everybody the middle finger and just, and just live. And for a while, it worked fine. In fact, there were times where I was scratching my head because I was better liked and more popular in that category, but ultimately, it was a trap. And here's the reason. It's because it's not just the opinions of other people that are fallible. fallible. It's the opinions of people, of which I, I am also one. And not only that, listen, one of the things that makes public opinion so irrelevant to your life is bias. What they want most out of you what's, what, is what's good for them. Not what's good, but what's good for them. You're also biased. Part of that blindness of sin, part of that reality is that we have a tendency to side with ourselves This is why when somebody comes with accusations, you stop listening, your inner lawyer kicks in, and you're already building a case for innocence, right? Because we're constantly convinced that we're not the ones in the wrong, that we're not the problem. Or, there is another way that a calloused conscience responds. A conscience left to itself, if it's the final arbiter, it becomes oversensitive. Just like a bad burn does, right? Where now normal things are painful. When Paul goes on later in this letter and he says, listen, eating the food that was offered to an idol is nothing because idols are nothing. How does he say we should respond? He says, but some people's conscience is too weak. He doesn't say the ones who avoid are the mature ones. He says they're the ones who are weak. And it's not just that they should, um, you know, not offend their conscience, but also that their conscience should mature, that it should grow up, that they shouldn't be so bothered by these things. When he says here, I don't even judge myself, he's recognizing the fact that if that's the place you look for value, if that's the place you look for determination of justification, ultimately it will let you down and lead you astray. Now, don't those two things kind of cover the whole of human life? If you answer the question, how do I know that my life has meaning? How do I know that my life is valid? How do I know that I'm really a good person? Are those not the two primary courts we appeal to? Take the artist. How many artists have started making their art, but after a while, they get some notoriety, and now they're just making art for the audience because it's popular and it's successful, and they're, they're making exactly what they know people want to see, whatever it is. They sell out, right, this phenomenon. 
On the other hand, there's this modern idea that says the only way you can be a real artist is if you're true to yourself. I'm warning you that that's a cultural blind spot. That this idea that we can be the final gauge, final judge, that we can sit on the throne of our own court case and give the verdict is a mistake and a dangerous one. And so Paul says, I'm going to listen to my conscience. In fact, you know what he tells Emperor Felix in Acts chapter 24? He says, I daily try to live with, with a good conscience. He tries to keep his conscience, but as a final assessment, on a final verdict of his life, he says, that's not where it matters. Going back to 1 Corinthians, where does it matter then? If you understand the idea of servanthood and stewardship and faithfulness, it shouldn't be a surprise. What does he say here in verse 4? For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. He says, the fact that my conscience isn't, isn't struck, the fact that I feel innocent doesn't make me innocent. Why? Because he doesn't answer to himself. Look at what he says. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. That's the highest court. That's the supreme court, if you will. That's the one that all appeals ascend to, and it's the final assessment. So he gives his application, then he says, all y'all who were pitting me up against Paul or Apollos and Peter, he says this, he says, verse 5, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Okay, now, he lays out in these next few verses why Jesus' judgment is better, why his assessment is greater, why you shouldn't trust the court of public opinion or the court of your own assessment, but instead should appeal to the highest court. And this is what he says. First and foremost, he says, I'm not going to pronounce judgment before the time. Okay? Now, I think that word pronounce is really helpful. Because like I've already said, it's clear according to the Bible that we should be able to evaluate good and evil. That we should be able to see it in our own lives because of conscience, and that we should be able to speak it into other people, right? The idea of accountability and, and recognizing things, the ideas of investigating where evil may have been committed to see what really happened, all of those things are implied in this reality, but pronouncing judgment has to do with finality. It has to do with the final assessment has to do with the highest court and the end verdict, okay? And he says that that's the prerogative of God. And he says that that comes at the end. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus' judgment is better than ours. How many of you have attended a Mariners or a Seahawks game and everything's, you know, the Mariners or the Seahawks are completely behind. It's the last inning or the final quarter, just a few minutes on the clock. And so you decide to beat the rush. You get in your car, you turn on the radio, and there's been a complete reversal. And you've just missed a couple of incredible plays, and now the Mariners win the game. Have you had that happen? I think that's a Seattle phenomenon. I think it's happened to all of us, right? Do we see this about life? That when you make a judgment in your life about you or about other people, it is while the game is still in session while the contest is still underway, before the job has come to its end, before the final inning, before the finish line, and therefore not really the greatest assessment? One of the things that's the most limiting about human life is that, for example, consequences can't always be seen right off the bat. And so we look at something and we go, that was a great decision, and five years later we go, oh, I can't believe how that turned out, right? 
This is something the Bible testifies. It says, hey, this is how wickedness works. Sometimes wickedness is self-evident and visible. Everybody sees it in booze. He says, but other time it takes a long time to bear fruit. It still bears fruit. The consequences still come, but sometimes they follow after. They follow later. One of the things that we should be encouraged about, about this court, why we should appeal to this court, why we should find meaning and validation in this court is because it's at the end. When all the chips are on the table, when the game has been finished, where there's no time on the clock, but there's a second reason. It's not just when, but who. Notice again what he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Now, I want to be clear here. The judgment that's being talked about is specifically of Christians as servants in regards faithfulness, right? This is not talking about judgment in the big apocalyptic heaven and hell eternal damnation sense. The principles are very overlapping in the same, but I want to be specific here. But notice here that when it comes to judgment and the evaluation, he says that it's the Lord. Now, I know Paul is a writer, and if he uses the phrase the Lord, he's thinking specifically of Jesus, which is fascinating. Because this idea that we're accountable to God, that's an Old Testament idea. But Paul says, you want to know who's going to sit on the throne and do the judgment and who does the assessment? It's Jesus. Now, this is why this is better than the court of public opinion and the court of your conscience. Because nobody in your life, as much as you care for them, as much as you respect them, as much as their opinion means to you, none of them, knowing the full depths of your wickedness and your rebellion against God, became a man and climbed on a cross out of love and died for you. This is the Lord we're talking about doing the assessment. Not just the all-powerful and all-knowing and completely just Lord, but the Lord who lived and died on your behalf because he loves you. People won't always love you. You won't always accurately love yourself. Jesus does, and he's demonstrated by dying on the cross. This is why it's a better court. He doesn't finish there. He continues on, and the next thing he says is, Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He says two things here that make this a better judgment. The first is that the things that are hidden in the darkness will be brought to light. I love how Isaiah says it. He says, don't you understand that even darkness is light to the Lord? Right? Isn't that what we'd expect? There are secrets. There are hidden things. There are unknown variables. Not to God. Who you are when you're alone, he knows. What your motive is in your heart, he knows. Um, The things that nobody sees that you do, he knows. Good and bad, right? See, this is once again really encouraging because some people's vocations and callings is inherently public. Guys, one of the things you got to realize is every time we boo some public figure for having a terrible foible in their life, it's terribly public, Right? That's so different than our lives. And it's so easy for us to thumbs down them and go, I can't believe they're that type of person when we have the same things going on in our life. They're just not on the five o'clock news. But the hidden things. In fact, listen. Part of what the hidden things means is the things that go missed by other courts. Ultimately, what Paul says here is that Jesus' judgment will be just. And that's not a guarantee you get anywhere else. Our world is so full of injustice, we know that people get away with it. 
We know that they have the power and the financial ability and the connections to overturn the courts in their favor and things remain hidden. We know that there are people who are applauded in history as heroes who are far from it because we don't know any better. But everything that is hidden will be revealed. And another thing, another illustration of this is prayer. The Bible puts a great emphasis on the power of prayer that you can participate and see incredible things happen. But doesn't Jesus himself say that the appropriate setting for prayer is hidden? That it's in your own private world? That if you're doing it in public, it's so prone to be not about prayer at all, but to be about the type of person who prays, being seen as a prayer warrior, these types of things? Here's what I love about this. This court takes those hidden things and assesses them rightly and brings them into value. There are things that have happened in this world because of the power of prayer that none of us make the correlation because it happened hidden, happened quiet. Some people have been devoted to praying for a particular city or a particular family member for their entire, you know, adult lives. Do you know those details? The Lord does. He goes on, though, he says, it's not just the hidden things, but it's also, he says, the disclose the purposes of the heart. Let me tell you a truth that you may not believe, but the, the longer you think about it, you'll agree with me. You don't know yourself. We always feel we do. We always assess every motive in our life as being the one that's self-evident to us. I'm doing this because. But the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? In fact, David prays an incredibly helpful prayer. He says, search my heart, O God, and show me if there's any wicked way in me. I'll tell you two things about that prayer if you pray it for yourself that I found to be true. One, it's a prayer God likes to answer. And two, every time he's answered in my life, I've been shocked. You know, I've got things that I think he might want to talk about, and it's like, oh, really? Right? That's the reality of the human heart. We like to think that we have the best interest in mind, but we are prone to having mixed motivation. Not only that, but on the other hand, some of the things you've done are foiled because of circumstance or personal weakness, but your motives were right. What you desire to do was glory, you know, give glory to God and pursue his kingdom, and it doesn't pan out that way, but the purpose of your heart will be weighed. It will be recognized. Listen, when we put these two things together, that it's the Lord who judges and that he judges by disclosing darkness and the purposes of the heart, this is what he's saying, that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's how Paul says it in Romans. Can you swallow that pill? Can you recognize that truth, that God can be both just and justifier of the ungodly, that he's both completely just in his behavior and forgiving, that as, um, as it says in the Psalms, that righteousness and mercy can kiss. That's the judgment that's going down here. It's completely and totally just, completely and totally forgiving because it's the court of Jesus. Listen, Jesus knows the whole story. He judges from that place. But listen to this last part. He says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, notice he only speaks in the positive here. Why do you think that is? Is it because some of you feel so weighed down by the reality I just presented you need some good news? It probably is. And here's what it is. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
commendations to come. Condemnation, all paid for, all finished. The assessment we're talking about is not about your failures. It's not about the places you didn't measure up. It's not about the wood, hay, and stubble. Even though those things will be burned up, it's about the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. But here's something more important. The word for reward here, what is it? Commendation. What does that imply? Jesus tells us, this is what we're working for in our Christian lives. It's the well-done, good and faithful servant. It's the words from his mouth. Why does that make this a better court? Each and every one of us lives for validation. The way that we live our lives, the things that we do, whatever court we're appealing to, whether it's our own self-actualization that I have to do this to be true to myself or whether it's to prove it to our parents or our mentors or the public as a whole, we feel this need for validation, for justification, for the demonstration that my life matters, that everything's okay. But the scary thing is, even if you win it in the court of public opinion, even if you find that peace in yourself where you can say, I am at rest with who I am, it will not satisfy you. If you were with us when we studied through Ecclesiastes, this was the big point that Solomon was trying to make. So many of us are aspiring to things uh, that the author had seen, that he had had, that he had experienced, and we go, if only I had, and he goes, I've got it, doesn't help. If only I had a little bit more, and he's like, I've got more than I need, and it's not enough. Speaking with a friend recently, he's an older friend, and he said, I could have had a Pulitzer Prize by now. And after we talked for a while, I said, I think if you had it, it wouldn't change anything. And that's true. Because what he needs is related to what we all most need. You want to know what's wrong with humanity? What's wrong with us? We are separated from the God who created us. That's the validation we need. That's the justification. That's the affirmation we're looking for. And you are striving for that commendation, whether you put the judge, you know, the, the judge robes on your parents um, or on your boss or on these standards that you've created for yourself and inner vows that you've put in place you know, to, to self-actualize to meaning. But the problem is even if you get those things, it won't take care of what you need most, which is to know that your relationship at God, with God is at complete peace. That's why the New Testament doesn't have to, like other religions, offer up all of these bits and baubles as rewards. What makes the Christian view of heaven heaven? That God dwells with his people. Read Revelation 21 and 22 and see if I'm wrong. What's the emphasis in those passages? And God will be with them. And God will be with them. And there will be no sun because the Lord will be with them and he will be their light. Over and over and over again, that's the emphasis. Like I said, whether you know it or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you are seeking for that commendation. You are seeking for that well done, for that well done, for that validation of your life. And you can only get it from one place, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And like I said, now it's easy for us to tell what's so scary about succumbing to these other courts. Because you can win over public opinion and they can be wrong. And you can be self-satisfied and still be a mess. But what Jesus is calling us to is faithfulness. Not unachievable craziness, you know, like some sort of super saint. Faithfulness with what you've been given and what you've been called to. And the reward of that is well done. 
the reward of that is enter into the joy that's been prepared for you. The reward of that is the commendation of God. Now, like I said, he starts here talking about how they're judging others, but he turns the tables here. Look at verse 6. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. This word here for applied is a peculiar one. What he actually says is, I've laid a parallel for you guys. In other words, what he says is, I'm talking about us, but I'm not really talking about us. I'm talking about how you view leaders, but I'm not really talking about leaders. You know what it's like? David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, who God looked in his heart, according to Samuel chapter 8, and saw what he needed to see and put him on the throne. That David takes advantage of his power and office, sleeps with another man's wife who happens to be one of his soldiers, gets her pregnant, and then to cover it up, puts that man's life in danger until he's killed on the front line so that nobody knows. But God knows, and he sends a prophet named Nathan, and Nathan takes the most interesting tact. This is how we'd write it if we were writing the show for HBO. Nathan just kicks in the door and says, you dog, do you think it wouldn't be found out do you, you know, that's what we would expect. It's some big confrontation. You know what Nathan does? He goes, hey, David, I'd like to tell you a story about a sheep. David's a shepherd. He cares about sheep. And the story is really David's story, but being told as if it's not David's story. And David jumps out of his chair and says, I tell you that man will die. And Nathan just says, David, I'm talking about you. And he's instantly convicted, right? He catches all of the injustice of the situation and then sees he's really talking about himself. This is what Paul has just done to the church in Corinth. Okay? And the reality is, it's not all only about us being judged by others. It's about us being judges. This is how he continues. Look at what he says. He says, I've done these for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to be go, go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And when he says here, go beyond what is written, it's, it's kind of hard to understand what he's talking about. Does he mean what, what I've just written? Like, don't go beyond the things that I've just said? Or is he talking generally about the Bible? Your life right now is outside the context of Scripture? What makes the most sense to me is what I have written from the Old Testament. If you've been with us the last few weeks, he's quoted over and over again the Old Testament to make his case, and they've all hammered the same point. Do not boast in anyone but the Lord. It seems that's most likely what he's talking about, and if you're curious why I think that, it's because the word here, graphe, Paul only uses it of the scriptures, ever. He never uses it of anything else, and so I'm just trying to be consistent in my interpretation here. But what he says is, this is about boasting. In fact, isn't that what he says next? He says, don't go beyond what is written how. Again there in verse 5, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So he turns the shells here and he says, the real issue is not with what you think of me, but in how you think about what you think of me. The real issue is not about how I receive in my heart your judgment, but the fact that you are making judgment. It's that proclamation. And he says, the problem is that you're prideful. The problem is that you're boasting. The problem is that you're puffed up. Let me nail this home for you. Anytime we make ourselves judge, we forget very important details. Okay? The first and primary is that we are not better than the one we're judging. Which is built into the idea of judgment. 
Here's how he, he gets to the heart level here. Look at the question he asks. He asks three questions, all of them rhetorical, all of them about the Corinthians. He says, first, for who sees anything different in you? He says, who's made a distinction between you and others? What court have you succumbed to that's made you superior enough that now you can judge others? Right? Is it public opinion? People applaud you, and so now you're known as a critic, and when somebody does something bad, everybody turns and goes, I wonder what this blogger's going to say, right? Is it your internal perspective, and you say, hey, man, I've never done anything like that, so you are a horrible person. He's already shown that those courts have no hope for us and no reality. You see, inherently built in the idea of judgment is not just, I haven't done what you have done. But because I haven't done what you have done, I'm better than you. It's built into it. And he says, who made you superior? Who appointed you to this office? Who elevated you against other people? And then he takes it deeper and he asks this question. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Remember that gift, those gifts and those callings and those talents and personalities and vocations that we've all been given? You've been given them. And so you say, man, I have never treated anybody like that. But so much of that reality is not just your personal decisions and willpower, but, you know, the circumstances that you grew up in and all of these things. We look at another person and we go, man, that guy does not have the ability I have. That is not a good place to go. That makes me better than him. The abilities are God-given. See, I've been trying to think about how we could change this up in the Olympics. And all I can think of is, uh, and even this would fall short, but it's the difference between having one big Olympic race instead of doing that where it's just the finish line, right? What if we take two people who have never swam before and they start and we follow them for six years and at the end of the six years we ask, who swims further than that first time? That's getting closer to the reality, right? Because it has that place from where it came. But even there, there's the reality that swimming's built on genetics. And some of us, like Apollo, Mr. Apollo, have very, very large fish-like feet, right? There are these elements that you can't deny that go into what makes a good swimmer. But the point is for us tonight, what do you have that you didn't receive? What is it that you hold over other people and say, this is evidence that I am better than you and that you're falling short of my standard? And then just to nail it home, he says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's a wild thing. You know what? You want to know what judgmentalism is? It's boasting. We think we're saying something about someone else, but every single time we're saying something about ourselves. And he says, there's no room for boasting. And so it's not just about boasting in other people. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. It's I'm, I'm the type of person who stands with the type of person like Paul. I'm the type of person who knows a good teacher when I see one. Have you noticed that in the American church, we now have sermon connoisseurs and they come and they drink in the wine of a sermon and they don't swallow it. They swill it around. They draw out all of its flavors and its vibrancy and they spit it out and then they give judgment over it. It was said maybe 50 years ago by a pastor that the, the number one lunch that, pe- that Christians have when they go home from church is roast preacher. This is just who we are. This is what we're prone to. And all Paul wants us to see is what it is. It's pride. And it's an appealing to the wrong court. And so 
the full reality here is that this final judgment is real. That it is coming. And like I said, this applies specifically to Christians. There's no condemnation. It's not about if you will be saved or go to heaven or any of these things. It's, it's about faithfulness now and the reward that comes with that. But if you're not a Christian tonight, the reality of judgment is something you should recognize here. The, the fact that the other courts can't seem to satisfy you is something that you should recognize. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if I find a craving in, my, in myself for something I cannot find in this world, maybe it's evidence of something beyond this world. And you need to know, you know that full reality, but you also need to know the goodness of that judge. That he's not just sitting up there with arms crossed and in you know, a permafried, angry face, you know, shaking his head at all of your decisions, but when you didn't know about it, when you weren't even aware of your own sins and the depths of your own problems, he willingly, 2,000 years ago, before you were even born, became a man and lived the life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserve and today freely offers you restoration, forgiveness, peace with God. He's just and the justifier of the ungodly. Listen, the reason why this is so important is because we tend to think that the thing that drives faithfulness is the fear of punishment. And over and over again, the Bible says that that's misguided, that the greatest servants are servants of love. And those who will be most faithful to God as servant and do most with what they've been given are the ones that recognize the goodness of the giver. When he says, who do you think you are? He's talking about presumption. But when he says, what, have you been, what do you have that you've not been given? He's talking about ingratitude, unthankfulness. And so even as we close tonight and as we sing these songs of worship, sing songs of thanksgiving to combat this false reality that we buy into, that we stand our own two feet, that we can don the robes of the judge because we are the highest court of public opinion that we're different than anyone else. Listen, there is a judgment and every single one of us is on the same side of the bench. And then recognize the tremendous love and the goodness that God has not only given you all these things to do, but given himself to help you do it. And I promise you that nothing develops productivity, true and valuable productivity in the Christian life, and not just in doing stuff, but in becoming someone like grace, like the fact that God has freely given and freely offered when you did not deserve. Nothing spurs on faithfulness like the fact that God has been faithful even when we were faithless. Let's pray. Father, we're prone sometimes to be satisfied in the opinions of others or the opinion of ourself, to sit back on our lees and settle for less than what you have for us. And we're also prone to be completely crushed by the opinions of other people, to be driven to people please, or aspiring to you know, assuage our conscience um, by our own works. And I pray, Lord, that you would recalibrate us around the only judgment that matters, the only courtroom that assesses the whole story finally and completely and totally. 
and that that would not just be a reality that shakes us, but a reality that gives us rest, because that is a faithful judgment, and a true one, and an honest one, and one that's based on who we are, and where we are, and not where we are not, and not who we are not, and not who they are. I pray, Lord, that this would free us up to be faithful where we are because you've placed us here and because you've given us the things we need. You've made us a steward of good things. You've prepared beforehand good things that we should walk in them. You've given us gifts and abilities and opportunities and relationships, not just as slaves and as servants, but as sons called into the business of their father. We confess, Lord, the tendency we have to climb into the dock. Climb up and put on the robes and pick up the gavel and try and do what we can never do. Be God. I pray for this dependence we have on one another to speak the truth in love. I pray that it would be that and not judgment, that it would be humility and gentleness and not pride and boasting, that it would not be divisive but uniting, Lord, that what we would have in the church of Christ is a family that's in it together, helping each other, raising up one another's arms, praying for one another so that we all may fulfill the fullness of God's will for us as a church. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will judge us but who first came to die for us, who loved us so much that he laid down his own life and invited us into relationship with him. We lift up these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond tonight, um, come and partake.